Creative Collisions with Second Home. In ancient Rome, it was expected of an engineer to prove the safety of a finished bridge by sleeping under it with their families. In this episode, it's all about having skin in the game. Welcome to Creative Collisions. I'm Rohan Silver, and in this podcast, we celebrate creative diversity, bringing you conversations with great talents from different industries, direct from second home. So you might say that creativity is about coming up with something that's innovative and maybe even useful. We all have the potential to come up with something new, but it's the ideas that tick the usefulness box that have the best chance to move society forward. How do we organise society in such a way that useful ideas and the people that come up with them prosper, while harmful ideas and their creators don't? For the famous author and philosopher Nassim Nicholas Taleb, all this comes down to individuals taking ownership and responsibility for their ideas and their actions. And that means directly feeling the consequences themselves of both their good and their bad creations. And for Nassim, there's nothing more important than having skin in the game, the name of his fascinating book. In this episode, Nassim joins us with his good friend and regular drinking buddy, Rory Sutherland. Rory is a real polymath and helps run the giant advertising agency Ogilvy. And they're going to be discussing why accountability and risk-taking are fundamental to how we can improve as individuals and how society as a whole can change for the better. Now, before we get into this conversation, um, I feel like I need to warn you of something. I've known Nassim for many years and he's brilliant. He's a truly original and I think important thinker. But he's also someone who is a bit allergic to editors. He deliberately presents his ideas in a way that uh, contradicts our modern habit of condensing information and making things easy to understand. And, you know, when it comes to Nassim's books, if you've read any of them, you know, it's really hard to just browse and cherry pick a chapter from the book or skip to a summary. He really wants you to be fully immersed in everything he's saying and follow the argument right through. So that's Nassim's style. And it's what makes him, I think, so fascinating. He looks at the world in a, in a really unique way. So look, be prepared. Nassim and Rory have an endearing way of skipping through topics and dropping in some pretty obscure references. But, you know, have Google at the ready. I'm going to be here on hand, jumping in and out of the conversation to help define things and, and explain what the hell they're talking about at times. So uh, listen, tune in and uh, enjoy. There are three understandings of skin in the game. The elementary one is that of economists. The skin in the game is incentives. Economics is about incentives. Lack of incentives, you know, will turn you into a Soviet shell. Okay, that's fine. Number two way, all right, is skin in the game is a disincentive to protect society from those who transfer risks to others. Yeah. Hammurabi's rule 4,000 years ago said if the architect builds a house, the house collapses, architect shall be punished. 
as a deterrent, disincentive, you see? So yeah. you're accountable for the harm you've done to other torts yeah. law. The third point is the filtering part of scaling the game. Let's think about it. Those who are very risky also put themselves at risk. And that symmetry is how systems operate, and it's called evolution. The whole idea of evolution is that systems learn at the molecular level. It's not like someone who learns because you learn you know, to avoid danger. It's because of that filtering. An interesting thing that emerges from that, which is a kind of intelligence which may be unconscious and have no intent. So I'm always intrigued by the fact that restaurants play a very clever trick from a behavioral science point of view to make you buy wine. They play about 10 tricks to make you buy wine, but one of them is they only hand out one wine list. And that forces the man at the head of the table to turn to everybody and go, red or white? At which point it's game over for the gin drinkers, or in your case, the, is it Raki or is it your, your own? Arak, Arak, yeah, the, the, the yeah. Arak drinkers, yeah. <laughs> now, it always struck me, did, did they do that on purpose? Or is it simply the fact that, first of all, there's a great deal of copying, but is it just that the restaurants that didn't play those tricks went out of business? So I know Nassim may not be happy with me for trying to summarise uh, his points, but let me just try and give it a go. So basically the three main principles of skinning the game, as Nassim Taleb puts it, are firstly incentives. In other words, if you've got skin in the game, you have more upside if things work out. So you've got real incentive to work hard and try and make something work. If you own a bit of a company, then you're more likely to want to work hard to make that company succeed because then you share in that success. So that's incentives. The second aspect for Nassim is to do with the transfer of risk. In other words, if you don't have skin in the game, then you're more likely to take dangerous risks with your investment or your business or whatever, because, well, you've got nothing to lose. You know, you have no stake in that business. So if, if it all goes uh, tits up, who cares? Other people can pick up the pieces. And you saw that to an extent with the banking crisis. And then thirdly, Nassim talks about filtering, which basically just sort of means the survival of the fittest. But he's applying it not just to nature, but to pretty much everything, including society and business. So, you know, if you've got a company that's doing something that, you know, isn't working, that'll be filtered out because that company has real skin in the game to ensure that it does better tomorrow and next week and next year and if it doesn't that company will disappear be filtered away and uh, and other things will take its place but that only happens if the organizations involved have a real reason to improve and learn and change another example that Nassim and Rory talk about in a really interesting way I think is the evolution of religious traditions so I've used that idea of survival, that things learn, systems learn, with religion. I've cited uh, Rory in two and a half instances, because I probably have used an idea I got from him thinking it was mine. <laughs> so I'm hedging the bet. Unlikely, but, but yeah, yeah. But one of them was the purpose of religion, and this idea of the kashrut laws, right? It seems completely irrational to have 500-plus dietary interdicts, mm. Mm. plus two sets of dishes, two sinks, yeah. Or four sinks. But you wonder, did someone design it that way? For No, it so happened that those who have these habits are forced to band together. 
you build a certain strength mm. that allows you to survive for 2,000 years in very, very hostile environments. Right. By the, way, by the way, this brings us to one of the most, I think the most, you know, absolutely critical sentence in the book, which is there is no such thing as a rational belief. There are only rational behaviors. Exactly. First of all, our brain is the product of all sorts of evolved heuristics and biases. The fact that we don't perceive the world objectively anyway. Then a belief which drives a beneficial behavior is essentially rational. Right. So, I mean, there's a wonderful example I discovered subsequently, actually, which is that they moved cemeteries out of towns in Central Europe, and they created a cemetery which was sort of half a mile from the center of the town. Right. This was a brilliant public health decision, but it was taken not for any reasons of keeping the water supply pure. It was for fear of revenants. They were frightened that the souls of the dead would come back and haunt them. Right. Now, it happened that that had fantastic public health benefits. Calling that an irrational belief, since you couldn't explain germ yeah. theory in the 17th century. Exactly. So it's not the ideas that compete with one another. It's population that harbor these ideas that survive. So, so an idea survives. So if the, the, that idea can be crazy, if it makes you survive, odds are you're going to have it. So, so everything that we have that we cannot explain, a lot of things, some of it may, may, may be just bogus, yeah. but we can't tell what is bogus and what is not. And that's where I go against what I call narrowly defined pseudo-rationalism, because you can call it pseudo-rationalism because this idea that to judge someone on his or her beliefs is not compatible with the definitions, the formal definition we have of rationality. 95% of the questions you have to answer in life are not answered by scientific rationality. Exactly, mm. exactly, exactly. Mm. But, but I mean, but we can approach them with rigor. Uh, we can do things, you know, to understand how to behave better. A statistician would say there's much more evidence that this works because when you have a very large N of surviving so many years of right. these properties, that these properties got to be, you know, have more foundational value than some idea in some psychology paper by yeah. someone who thought about these ideas as a grad student. You need to realize that the 99% of the things we've done today did not use science. Science is very important as epistemic representation and methodology for things you can prove within that framework. But science itself doesn't cover areas outside that narrowly defined realm. The rest, you're on your own to make your decisions. <clears throat> so you, gotta, you need a rigorous way to approach the world that is, that's not covered by science. And there is rigor for that. There is something called wisdom. There's, you know, we have there, and also there's something heuristics called practice, or... heuristics. But also there's a grandmother, right? So I mean, we've survived several hundred million years as mammals. And, and 100,000 years is really close to the present form, uh, using heuristics, using techniques that, that, that effectively were not scientific, but we survived. So survival is the most important thing. So the, the idea is that only charlatans and people who sell something called scientism use science outside its domain to construct societies, to do things, and then the rest but the rest were on our own, and we need rigor. And that's what, uh, hopefully, mm. this, the inserto that I've been working on is about. I mean, I make mistakes, but we're heading in that direction of accepting that there are things that need rigor but are not within the realm of strictly defined science mm. decision-making under uncertainty. I really like this point that, on paper, in theory, 
An idea might sound totally crazy, but its true worth actually only can be revealed once you actually put it in practice. I'm sure this is something that you know you've encountered as well. You know, when it comes to creativity and innovation, etc., we tend to put a lot of pressure on the original kind of perfect idea, rather than what it can potentially turn into, evolve into over time. You know, and, and a lot of that, a lot of what makes something successful ultimately, is about trial and error. Some of the coolest innovations come from happy accidents. A lovely example is the distorted, grungy sound of early rock and roll music, which came from a, an amplifier that had been accidentally broken. And this error turned out to have a huge impact on music for years to come. And it's this sort of unexpected upside in creativity that mistakes can give us. And, you know, it's nice to think that there might be a benefit to not getting it right the first time. All right, so back to skin in the game. I was wondering what the implications are of this way of thinking. How should we think about accountability in the real world? My first suggestion is to, th to, to think backwards, to think what kind of society should we build in which people who make decisions have to pay the price if something goes wrong. And effectively, not a mild price of not being elected, but a true price, okay? And that society, if we work backwards, we end up with localism. We end up with a, with a moral code you should teach children. Don't give advice unless you pay the price, unless you have something to lose. If something goes wrong, share risk. And warmongers, given that warmongers need to be uh, fighters, people say, well, you know what, I'm not going to send uh, Donald Trump or to the battlefield. But okay, then, then don't engage in wars. You know, for the, for the benefit of, you know, people listening who are planning to read the book, maybe haven't yet. Let's run through some of these consequences of, you know, or what a society should look like, um, taking uh, skin in the game logic in mind. So you, you mentioned localism. What is it, why is it that sort of okay. decentralised decision-making is uh, uh, beneficial? Right. It, it takes resilience, right? And decisions are made by people who live in a community, who own property in a community, it's not just living there, they own property in the community. And if something bad happens, you know, they're ruining their own environment, their habitat. Okay, so therefore the decisions are going to be wiser than decisions made by someone in Whitehall who has an Excel spreadsheet. And when something goes wrong, basically resigns or becomes a consultant for Goldman Sachs. So the idea is to have people live in a community where they pay the consequences. So right. that's one example. Take Lebanon. Lebanon had a civil war, mostly initiated by Palestinians who had nothing to lose. Refugee camps, or they came from Jordan, and basically they're, they're, they had nothing to lose. Since then, people were, have been scared of every time something happens, oh, we're going to have civil war again. But nothing happens, although we've had a lot of tension between communities. They just have sit down, they have a cup of coffee, and they solve it. <laughs> Why? They all own real estate in Lebanon. So they all would be ruined if there's civil war. So they work it out. They have to skin the game. Right. You see. Another one is foreign policy. Um, the, you know what, what uh, the, the U.S. State Department have been trying to, make, you know, to force peace in, 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 in between uh, Israelis and Palestinians. Leave these guys, try to leave these guys alone for a while because... Palestinians, they may settle. I mean, they would have settled in 48, probably, if the Arab government didn't intervene. They would settle in 56, settled in uh, 
67, 73, so, so the whole thing is stop doing the top-down thing. Let them leave them to their own device for a while. Rory, what do you think as well on, on localism as well about um, shame playing a factor as being part of the skin of the game? Because if, if you make a mistake and you're in, in, in charge of, uh, of, of, of policy in a community where you know, you're going to pay the content, you've got to go into church or synagogue Surrounded I, by I mean, reputational skin reputation. in the game is undoubtedly a form of skin in the game, isn't mm. it? You might argue that since physical harm has been largely removed from the repertoire. Right. Now, I'll tell you a very interesting story about this. This must be about 25 years ago. There are about five of us university contemporaries, and we've just about got enough money to buy our first shitty second-hand car. And all of us, without really consciously knowing why, like salmon returning to spawn, we all leave London, go back to the small towns we grew up, and we bought a second-hand car from someone vaguely known to our dad. And what we're doing there, we weren't buying the car we wanted to buy, as an economist would look at it, you know, about it's all about the car. We were saying, who can I buy a car from who has skin in the game? There we mm. go. That's exactly reputational skin in the game, particularly when you start building community where people have children, grandchildren around. It's, it's very hard. There is this element, so localism. The EU started on a principle of subsidiarity. Yeah. But I.e., decisions should be made at the lowest possible level. Exactly, and they, they, but they didn't execute it. So it was just lip service by civil servants. Why? Because civil servants, if you put people with that kind of a game in a room, they're going to find, like economists, the problems they can solve most effectively, or in their own eyes, the easiest things, the low-hanging fruit, messing with your life and, and what energy you use in your uh, toaster oven. So, I mean, so you get the idea. This is what bureaucrats are going to do. So, so just to continue what this um, society um, you know, ought to look like or would look like if skin in the game was, was properly factored in. Okay, let me, let me uh, digress with the reason behind yeah. it, that the, what I call the story of the, the surgeon. If you go to a hospital, you have to have a brain surgery. I'm, I'm, yeah. no, I'm not suggesting. It's no, just, I, just, people people it's often just suggest it to me. No. Yeah. All right, you're going to have brain surgery, and you're facing two surgeons. One looks like a butcher, and the other one looks like a surgeon, the kind of surgeon you see in a Hollywood movie. Which one would you pick? I, having read your book, would pick the butcher. Exactly. What's the reason? <laughs> the reason is that in any, in, in the, the butcher or the person who looked at the butcher had to overcome so much of a bad image to right. be there. Right. From there, I generalized that any industry yep. where people, you know, where the top surgeons don't look like butchers, right. but they look like Hollywood surgeons, yeah. are industries in which skin in the game doesn't prevail. What do you find? You find CEOs of companies. And CEOs of companies look like actors. Right, they're tall, they're distinguished, they're, whatever they're thin. Exactly, that's exactly, yeah. they don't look, they look like actors. Out of central casting. I, I was walking downstairs in your, your shop, and these people don't look like actors. No, they don't. <laughs> right. right. so, so this is a very simple heuristic. Yeah, right. CEOs are there to game the system and play that anti-fragile card, have the upside. They give you a good story. They can stash risk, namely debt or whatever it is, in, in, under the rug and leave five years, ten years later with their millions, and mm. that's it, and the company. But that explains why, uh, partly, the company now spends 10 to 12 years in the S&P 500. Right. There's also an absurdity, if you think about it, which is that stock market gains tend to take place over a longer period than falls do. So if you reward people annually for yeah, an exactly. increase in the share price, okay, mm. you end up being rewarded seven times exactly. and only punished yeah, once. Back to where you started. Yeah. For yeah. getting back to where you started, yeah. essentially.
Now, of course, it's easy to think of risk as nothing but a bad thing because it's about taking on the potential for stuff to go wrong for other people or, in this case, yourself. But, you know, as, as Nassim and Rory said, someone who's invested not only financially but also emotionally in their creation or in their skill really has an added layer of trustworthiness to everything they do. Nassim's made the point in the past that if you run a company that's so, so big that if it failed, the government would have to bail it out, you should be paid like a public sector worker because the risks you take are borne by society at large. He's partly saying that in order to say no company should be allowed to get so big, he knows that a banker doesn't want to get paid what a civil servant gets paid. A banker wants to get paid what a banker gets paid. And so, if, according to Nassim's kind of doctrine, if you want to get paid like a banker, well, you've got to take the risk yourself. And uh, if it all goes wrong, then it's, then it's on your head. You know, the truth is that it's often politicians and the CEOs who bear no real accountability for their decisions. Even when a politician is shamed for their mistakes and maybe they even lose their job as an MP uh, or as a minister, they usually manage to sidle very comfortably to a lucrative career in the public sector with no meaningful repercussions for them at all. Crony capitalism is usually happens because when you have a transfer, uh, what, what happened is that the, the government workers switch back and forth between public and private. People switch back and forth because uh, that's how the industry rewards you. Mm. And then you got to go back because, because the industry doesn't want you for too long. You see the idea. That's a, the, the, where yeah. you have some kind of revolving door. Now, it can be one way, but still, for example, the person regulating Monsanto at the EPA, all right, uh, collided with Monsanto because it's, it's good to be nice to them because they're going to give you a job later. If you look at the wealth in America, you see dynamically we don't have the inequality we have statically because the people who are rich today are not going to be rich later. And I think you know statistics that more than 10% of Americans will spend one year in the top 1%. Yeah. More than 55% will spend one year in the top 10%. Is that right, really? Yes. So, so you have, and in 1983, Forbes 500, all right, is vastly different from the yeah, 2013. Right. It's actually a very interesting question for tax policy because no one ever questions whether 40 people who earn in the top tax bracket once in their life a tax at the same rate as one person who earns that for all 40 years. Oh. Now, actually, that's an assumption that we should tax people in Exa that way. Exactly. I'm not exactly. sure we should. We, we had, actually, income averaging in, in America at some point to cover that if you're uh, some, for people who have, still, uh, you know, lumpy earnings. Yeah. Uh, or I think, I, I don't know if we still have it, but the... The, the UK the, doesn't, the does idea, it? No. The idea holds, but the... the the inequality, for example, in, in the UK and France, if you're a, a graduate Oxford of Oxford, Cambridge, you pretty much have an income for life, you see? Mm. You, you, that's, that's where the inequality comes from, not from the billionaire, but from that class of people who usually complain about inequality because they're... Yeah, the 2% really hate the 1%. Exactly. <laughs> so you have this rigidity of structure here in the UK. So the, the people, in the sense, that have... Uh, well, uh, a class of people who have a lot of skin in the game, of course, are entrepreneurs. You have two kinds of entrepreneurs. You have entrepreneurs who are entrepreneurs and they don't really need financing or they like to have financing, but that's not the idea. And people play the system by giving you, just like the actor business, oh, yeah. they're giving you a business plan you understand. 
same story as a surgeon. If you understand the business plan, don't invest. Okay. That's a really interesting heuristic. Okay. Yeah, it is. Yeah. If you understand, because if you understand the business plan, and and actually you don't, if someone's asking you for money, don't invest. Because if you notice, all these big success things were started and operate were operated before requiring Google made no investment. sense at all until they invented AdWords as a way of actually remunerating themselves. Google was created with no really sense of exactly, and then and, and, and same and look at Apple. It's not they didn't start on a business plan. So the idea was the minute you start having that game of business plans, then you end up with a bunch of people creating something, gaming the system to sell, to yeah. sell it to someone else. Yeah, and there's no real skin in the game. It's like the manager moving on, except they're delivering it. Skin in the game. Most people are calibrated ethically in the sense that they give as much harm as they take. Mm. Plus or minus, okay? Mm. Uh, a bad dentist is not going to continue, you know, bad for, for long. So most people are, and they are experts in that domain because if they're, they're not experts, you detect very quickly. Right. But there exists a class of people who both morally and epistemologically, right, can be wrong forever, you see? And when you criticize these people, they say you're against expertise. 99% of experts are experts. Right, you see, the gentleman now controlling, you know, who deals dealing with the sound system in front of me is an expert at sound system. He's, you know, he's a little uh, uh, a perfectionist with it, but he is an expert. So I know, he's, I know that uh, from from the sound, you can tell. Yeah. The 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 person who makes coffee made coffee downstairs is an expert at coffee, but the person making macro analysis, Paul Krugman, is not an expert in anything tangible. Or perhaps riding his bicycle, but mm. not in what he's not in anything consequential, consequential, by which I mean with exactly. consequences. Yeah, yeah. exactly. A further, just a final thing, which is when we have skin in the game, we essentially make decisions in a way that's fundamentally different to when we discuss something in a purely theoretical frame. I think we're instinctively calibrated to understand skin in the game tacitly, even when we can't put it into words. I think Maury's onto something here. As I see it, this whole lack of skill in the game thing that Nassim's talking about is a pretty recent phenomenon. Because you know, if you look back at our evolutionary history, it appears that humans spent a lot of time as uh, very social animals living in very small communities. And that meant that whatever actions you took, the people around you knew that you were responsible. And so by definition, you had skill in the game. And it's only really now in our globalized, very large cities, often anonymous societies, that we're able to pass the buck so easily and bear very little consequence for our actions ourselves. I don't know. But what is clear, though, is that it is really interesting to imagine, as Nassim asked us to, what our modern world would look like if everyone still had skin in the game, as we did through so much of our early history and prehistory. What I think is so interesting and relevant about Skin in the Game is, is that it really helps us understand where creativity and innovation often comes from. Because in the world around us, so much of it comes from entrepreneurial organisations, small private sector organisations and individuals, and much less in truth from big corporations and public sector bodies. Why is that? Well, a lot of it is to do with the fact that if you're self-employed or you've got your own business, you're under real pressure to create because you've got skin in the game. You'll lose everything unless you do something new. And so that 
pressure helps create focus and discipline. And uh, that, that 3 a.m. urge to come up with something that will make a difference for your life, for your business, for your customers. Whereas if you work for you know, a big corporation, you sleep easy. You know that whatever really happens this year, next year, whether the customers are happy or not, you'll still have a job, you'll still have a salary at the end of the month. And so that pressure to create is much less. But Nassim's work on Skin in the Game isn't just about us as individuals. It's also about society. It's clear that embracing the risk of failure isn't just a crucial part of success, but it's also fundamental to building what could be a more compassionate and well-functioning society for all of us. This programme was brought to you by Second Home and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Rohan Silver, and featured Nassim Nicholas Taleb and Rory Sutherland. This series is produced by Eli Block and Natalia Rodriguez, and the executive producer is Harry Watson. If you'd like to know more about Second Home, please go to secondhome.io. Listener.